0: Welcome to the Chatter in the Box podcast, where your hosts, Liam Skiffington and Matt Indominico discuss all things baseball. From breaking news to the latest free agent signings, they'll dive into today's game with some of the top minds from around the league. You can catch the latest episode of the Chatter in the Box podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, or Amazon Music, or visit our website at www.chatterinthebox.com. All right, we're back. Back-to-back episodes. Two-hour episode yesterday. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by a man who's been receiving a lot of hate on Twitter recently, not going to lie, Jeff Fry. Jeff, how you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good, buddy. How are you? I'm, I'm good. I appreciate you coming on, stepping in the box. Um, yeah, so I pretty much I DM'd you this morning. You said, I'm ready to go right now. Let's get this going. So uh, appreciate you taking the time and looking forward to hearing a little bit about your perspective on hitting philosophy in today's game and just today's game in general and also your career. So you were drafted in 1998, right? No, shoot. I was drafted in uh, 1988, 88. I was- eight did I say 98? I My bad. We did say
1: 98. I wish I My bad. Wish 88.
0: was in ninety eight, it'll only be 46 yeah eighty eight that was actually the same if I'm not mistaken, same draft Mike Piazza was drafted in, so you were actually drafted much higher than Mike Piazza, Jeff right
2: yeah, I think they missed the boat on that one <laughs> yeah.
0: all right, so you get drafted, Jeff, what was that like back then for you uh like the draft process?
2: man, there really wasn't a process, you know it was just so different than it is today where you know you, you, everything's on uh the internet and You know, these kids are talking to teens and things like that. I never even really talked to scouts when I was in college and never even really dreamed that I was good enough to play professional baseball until I went to a tryout with the Texas Rangers with a teammate's invitation and had the day of my life. And and then um, the Rangers told me they were going to draft me, and it was just kind of surreal and, you know, I didn't really know what to expect, but I was just excited about the opportunity. So you went to an open
0: invite? using your friend's invitation
2: i think we broke the rules man because uh actually i my my teammate was you know pretty sure he was getting drafted by the cincinnati reds his name is benny caller he was a two-time all-american and just a really good player so he, when he got the invitation he wasn't going to bother going to the rangers because he hadn't talked to ranger scouts and so i said well let me have your invitation and uh didn't know that that was okay or not and we told our coach, Coach Mike Matheny at Southeastern, he says, okay, well, let me call the Rangers and tell them. And he said, you know, Jeff's not the kind of guy who's going to stand out at a tryout camp. He's not a home run hitter. He's, he's, you have to see him play over time to appreciate him. And then I just go and have the day of my life and put on a show and get an
1: opportunity. So walk us through draft day. What's it like in 88 versus versus like today? Do you get a call? I'm sure you don't really get a watch. It's not televised, right? The uh, drafting you no know, it's pretty funny because uh, we didn't even have a television um
2: in our apartment in college and there really was you know I knew the draft was going on there was no way to track it and yeah um you know just sitting sitting in our apartment like we usually do probably playing cards or just doing nothing and, and then all of a sudden we get a knock on my door and it's coach Matheny who very rarely came to our apartment because it was so disgusting and uh so he he uh, knocked on the door and says, Fry, you got drafted in the thirtieth round by the Texas Rangers, you are gonna be here in two days to sign you and that was
0: it. Was so it you know, just like healthy. a yeah, was it just like a pat on the ass, like good job, then he Matheny kept it moving?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean really yeah. that's it. It wasn't you know, there's no fanfare and you know, no media there and my buddies were, you know, mm-hmm. giving high fives or whatever and I don't even know if high fives were popular in nineteen eighty eight, we were they were congratulating me because, you know, they were excited that their teammate was going to get a chance to play professional baseball.
0: Right. Absolutely. So you grind, you you drafted in 88, you grind about four years in the minors, you make your debut in 92. What was that like for you? And how did you come to make your debut? Like, was there an injury ahead of you? Did you get called up like mid season? What was that like?
2: Yeah, it was mid season. It was actually, I think, uh, July 17, 1992, and Julio Franco was a Rangers second baseman. And we had some knee troubles, so and I was doing really well in AAA. Just made the all-AAA all-star team and uh, you know, got the call at night in the morning when I was in Louisville, Kentucky, to come up to the manager's office, the manager's room, and I went up there, and he told me I was getting called to Texas and went and got my stuff, jumped on an airplane and flew to Texas and got there at 5, 5 p.m. at the Dallas-Fort Worth airport, uh, took a van, Van driver was there to pick me and Brian Bohannon up. He also got called up that day and got to the field at 5:30. Walked in the clubhouse, had never been in there, and you know they said showed me my locker and said go check out the lineup. And I walked over to the, the board that had the lineup on it, and I saw number 51. That was my number in spring training. Is leading off playing second, and then number 34 Nolan Ryan's pitching for us that night.
0: How intimidating was that for you to be in the lineup with uh, playing behind Nolan Ryan?
2: Very intimidating, very intimidating, and you know, I didn't really have a chance to do much. They said if you hurry up and get dressed, you can go out for BP, but it was already five after 5.30 and BP was over at 6, and I, and I hadn't even unpacked my stuff, and then they said, well, I said, I don't think I can make it, and they said, well, if you hurry up, you can go out and at least take ground balls. You know, take in, Back in the day when we used to take
1: infield, so infield was at 6.10, and so I went and took infield and got ready for the game. I'm sure that whole experience was – very surreal. But even after you got drafted, did you even see yourself making it to the big leagues at that point in eighty eight? From eighty eight to was it ninety two? You said, was yeah, no, no I really, didn't. And, and every spring training, I would drive to spring training
2: from from uh, Texas with my buddy Mike Hamilton, who was also in the Meyer leagues. And I was like, I you think I am going to get released this year? He's like, shut up, you, you hit three hundred <laughs> last year. I was like, I really had no clue. It's, it's yeah. people probably don't believe me, but I honestly, God, had no clue because. Yeah, I grew up in in California in the Bay Area. I was a huge Giants fan and watched the Giants and the A's play all the time. And those guys are just larger than life to me, man. That's just like I never even dreamed. Like Jack Clark, my hero. And here a couple years ago, because of the She-Gone, I got to meet my hero. And look at this guy. He's a monster, just a humongous man. And it's like, how did I get to play on – actually got to play on the same field as this guy? Pretty cool.
0: How was it for you Jeff meeting like finally meeting your childhood hero? What do you remember about that day?
2: Well, oh, I was so excited. It was we were we were both at a card show. I knew that he was going to be there and um so I show up and and when you do these things you get you're there for like 2 hours, probably the first hour you go in some back room and sign a bunch of pictures and whatever they want you to sign and so as soon as I walked in the door, I said, "Where is Jack Clark?" They said, "Oh, he was already in here." Um Hopefully he comes back down, and I was like, "He better come back down." And then a little while <laughs> later, he cut, oh the door opens, um, and they said, "There he is." And I said, "Jack the Ripper." And I went over there and gave him a big hug, and he gave me a hug. And Man, it was cool. We got to talk a bunch, and just a super nice guy. And you know, he was just—I I guess as a fan of his—to to finally get the opportunity to meet the guy that I emulated playing wiffle ball every
0: day of my childhood was just uh, like you said surreal. Mm-hmm. So Jeff, you play in, you're in Texas for about four years. Does that sound right? Yeah in the big leagues from 92 to 95 and you're still you still live in Texas today. So what uh, what about Texas like did you fall in love with? I have to assume it something brought you back right?
2: Yeah, I made a lot of friends here um, and you know they introduced me to some things I'd never done before like the batting right. practice pitcher Jess Cole, I met in 1992, is still one of my very best friends today, like a father figure to me. He taught me how to play golf, how to hunt, how to fish. And so we still do those things together today. And, and, you know, Texas uh, doesn't have state income tax, so a lot of athletes will live in the state of Texas or the states, you know, that don't have state income tax because we pay a lot of taxes. Um, I just like the weather. I could do a lot of, you know, do the things I like to do almost year-round without – any really cold cold weather
0: sounds like you're an outdoorsy guy obviously
2: yeah i, lo- I mean it's horrible here in texas right now it's like 105 but um it, it's usually pretty nice where you can even in the winter times we can go play golf when it's in the 50s you know and it's not snow on the ground and uh i do like doing things outside for sure
0: you a better golfer or baseball player <laughs>
2: oh i'm not a good baseball player anymore but uh <laughs> i'm a good golfer i'm like a 3.8 Index handicap, you know, I shoot, okay. shoot anywhere from 75 to 82 about every time.
1: I envy you. <laughs> I just, I just, I just picked up clubs for the first time a couple of years ago and I'm still like in the double digit handicap.
2: Well, when I was range. in the major leagues yeah. playing golf, I was like a 15 handicap. just, you know. Yeah, I'm just, still not even. I used to get, me, I just <laughs> get my butt kicked by all those guys, but uh, it was still fun to go out and hang out with.
0: Jeff, who was the sneaky best golfer in the major leagues that you played with during your time?
2: Oh, um, Derek Lowe was really good. Tim Wakefield was really good. Jim Rice was really good, too. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to Toronto, uh, Joey Hamilton was really good. And uh, Chris Carpenter and Roy Halladay were kind of just learning like I was, you know, probably about the mm-hmm. same, same level as I was. And But Jeff mm-hmm. Ross was our uh, clubhouse uh, manager in Toronto. He used to
0: kick
1: all our butts.
0: Really? Yeah. 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 So in '95, so oh sorry, Matt, I
1: was you just gonna it. say you spent some time up in Boston, uh, Jeff. After Texas, What would you think about? Because I am living in Boston currently from Massachusetts. what Would you think about the Boston uh, fan base, uh, stadium? What did you think about Boston in general? I loved it. I loved it. The favorite place I've ever played. It was uh, really,
2: yeah. The fans were really good to me, and you know, I think that uh, they really appreciate effort and someone that goes out there and and lays it all out there every night. And regardless sometimes of the outcome, they appreciate that The blue collar mm-hmm. city. And I, I tell people all the time that the difference in playing in Boston and the other places I played was, you know, in Texas on a Sunday, we could be losing 10 to nothing and the crowd would go crazy. And that's because the Cowboys just scored a touchdown. Uh, yeah. cause it's <laughs> town. I said, but in Boston, if we lose on a Wednesday, night, Wednesday night, half the city's going to work pissed off on Thursday. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, but, you learn to appreciate that and playing in Fenway Park with the history the guys that have played there it was just really really cool.
0: Jeff so you actually played behind Pedro Martinez for two of his most and probably two of the most dominant seasons by a pitcher ever 1999 and 2000. What was that like for you and what can you tell us about just how Pedro was in the clubhouse during that uh, run of dominance?
2: Uh, I mean it was incredible to watch Pedro um the one year where he, you know, had his ERA, I think, under two. I still remember. That was
0: 99, I think. Yeah, yep.
2: Being out there at second base and I'm looking over at Nomar and, and all we're doing is basically standing around, counting the number of Ks they hang in the outfield. I'm like 13, 14, 15. And I'm looking at Nomar and he's over there yawning. I was like, dude, get in the game. But really, we, I mean, it was incredible to watch. And and p d is what we called Pedro, had a big personality. And he was uh, just a fun, loving guy. You'd never, if you saw him in person back then, he was not very big and just kind of skinny and long arms. And yeah. You would never think that this guy could do what he did. Uh, but when he when he stepped foot on that mound, it was all business, man. And and you knew you were you had the opportunity to maybe see something special that night. And it was just a, an honor to be able
0: to play with him. So you mentioned Jeff, like Pedro's personality. We all know he's a happy-go-lucky, super um, energetic, eccentric guy. But when he's on the mound and when you were playing with him, were you able to see like that flip of the switch where he became, where he went from like that happy-go-lucky guy to dominant competitor?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. It was so different. Cause actually we used to rag on him a lot because whenever he wasn't in the game, he was so loud and annoying in the dugout that, we were to tell him to be quiet. Was actually, they taped him to the to the dugout pole that one time and covered his mouth up. Mm-hmm. And he wouldn't stop talking and yelling at the other team. But yeah, you knew when he took the mound that it, it was he was all business. And I, I remember one time we were in Oakland. and I think Wakefield was pitching and he threw a knuckleball and Olmedo signs like stuck his knee out and got hit with the pitch. You know, knowing it wasn't going to hurt that bad. And Pedro started screaming from the dugout. He goes, "You want to get hit? You want to get hit? Okay." Because Pedro was on the mound the next day. And so, the very ne- first at bat, the next day, Omedo signs steps in the box right in the middle of the back. <laughs> mm. Okay. Did he get tossed? Huh? No, no. Did he get, no, no warning, nothing? I, I wish it was that way now because when they allowed <laughs> us uh, to police the game ourselves, the stuff just ended a lot quicker, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so now, when a guy hits somebody and they warn both teams and everybody's afraid to retaliate, they feel like they didn't get even. You know, so it's still there. It's still there. But we used to just handle it right away. I'll, I'll tell you real quick. John Wasden was pitching against the White Sox one day, and the White Sox hit John Valentin in the wrist accidentally. But, but back then it didn't matter if it was accidentally accidental or not. You just broke one of our best players' wrist, And so now mm-hmm. we got to get one of your guys. And so I went up to Wasden in the dugout, and he was relatively new to the team. And I took it upon myself to do it. I walked right up. I said, hey, you get the first two dudes next inning, smoke the next dude. He goes, all right. So we went out in the field. And, you know, you don't always know if a guy is going to have the courage to do that. Um, Sometimes you see a guy who's supposed to hit somebody, throw three or four balls behind their back by 10 feet. It's like, well, he didn't want to hit him, right? So Woz gets the first two guys out. Here comes Ron Karkovice, who's a backup catch for the White Sox, and a super nice guy, just happened to be the wrong, time, wrong guy up at the wrong time. First pitch, Watson smoked him right in the ribs. Bam! And it hit him so flush, it went straight down, fell on the ground. Karkavice just went, ugh, and, like, flipped his bat and went to first. And we went in after the inning, and I went up to Watson and I said, you just earned every one of your teammates respect for doing that. Good job. And that was it. It was over.
1: Damn. So not even a warning issued after that? Nothing. 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 The umpires let us handle it.
0: Why do you think, Jeff, that the game has – gone to a place where players are no longer allowed to police the game themselves like you said and like there's just seems to be so many rules in place in terms of protection like the na- the neighborhood play the uh leaving a lane for the runner i think those are kind of more so for the player's benefit and health wise but why do you think the game is where it's at today
2: uh well i have two two plays in particular the posy play and the the Utley play, you know, mm-hmm. and that's why they changed the rules. Yeah. And I can tell you that as a middle infielder my whole career, I wasn't afraid to, to get injured on those plays. I learned how to work around the base, and, and I knew who was on first. I knew if they were a guy that were going to come in hard and take me out. We knew who those guys were, and we all figured a way to uh, work around it. And we knew the catchers yeah. you couldn't slide into. If you slid into Mike Slosha, mm-hmm. he was going to hurt you. No question. He's going to drop his knee and he's going to hurt you. So we knew that stuff. And the neighborhood play um, changed when they put in instant replay. You know, and, and really, is it really that big of a deal for me to be standing on the base when I catch the ball, when the ball beats the guy by 10 feet? I'm trying to get out of the way, turn the double play. It looks like I'm on the base. And I was taught not to be on the base. We all were. Don't stay on the base. That's how you get hurt. And I think mm-hmm. those, two, those two plays are why they changed the rules when they brought the instant replay, which was designed, I think, initially to, you know, get the the home run calls, like the Derek Jeter home run and things like that, or, or the Moises Alou play, the Bartman play, make sure those plays are called right. It wasn't intended to if a guy comes off the base for a millisecond, you know, on a slide play where he's clearly safe by ten feet. So mm-hmm. I I just think that's kind of um, why they changed the rules and they took the, the power away from the players when it comes to throwing at guys and by issuing warnings early in the game and just not letting us handle it. Are these rules you wish you had back when you were playing? Or No, no. We so love, no. love, yeah. love the the, the idea yeah. that, you know, Kirk Gibson's at first base and I know he's going to sound like a friggin' runaway freight train coming in, breathing hard at second. I know I have to get rid of the ball quick and get up or I'm going to get hit. <laughs> It's just part of it. That was any of, guys. That was the fun part of being a middle infielder.
0: Any guys when you played Jeff that kind of had a reputation for coming in hard, going in spikes up.
2: No, generally going in spikes up was was uh, a no no, and you know not mm-hmm. really. Uh, I don't really remember any certain guys that were known for that. But if somebody did it, it was almost like they hit one of our guys. So guy comes in, yep. spikes up, gets you good. Next time. He's on first. Me and the shortstop are looking at each other going, all right, double play ball, we're dropping down right here. And we're going to try and mm-hmm. throw one, make him get down right away. And if he doesn't get down, we hit him right between the eyes. And, that, and that's what we did. Um, at least the game, man. My first game in the big leagues, uh, the very first time I got to first base, there was a ground ball, double play ball. And I went into second and took out Carlos Baerga and knocked him on the ground. Went back to out dugout, <laughs> high five. You know, that was my job. And so – now I'm in the field and there's a double play ball and Mark Witten's at first. I think it was a ground ball and a shortstop and he threw me in the ball and Whitten was about a foot from the base when he slid and I one hopped it to first and turned it. Two innings later, Albert Bell's on first and we saw what he did to Vina, right? Well, Albert Bell, double play ball, he didn't even slide. He ran straight through the base and I adjusted my throw to throw over the top of his head so I didn't hit him and it... First baseman Palmero tried to stay on the base, and the ball hit the top of his glove. And I got a E four thrown air. So they were coming after me in retaliation for me taking their guy out,
0: and I understood that. Yeah. So you guys just wouldn't hold like the next game, Jeff. So someone gets one of their guys gets hit, one of your guys gets hit. The next game, clean slate, or does that carry over back then? Hey, once
2: you feel like it's even, it's it's gone. It's over. You know, but it's sometimes, a clean slate, then. You never, sometimes you would you wouldn't be able to get even. Maybe they get you late in the game on a you know the last time you play in that season, right? So you don't mm-hmm. get a chance, and you can't. It's too risky. Uh, maybe a one run game in the ninth inning. We're not going to risk losing the game by getting even. We'll get them next time. The next time might
1: not be till next year, but we still remember. You know, we've seen rev- not reviews, but viewership kind of gone down or plateau over the past few. Years, almost a decade in baseball. Do you think the MLB has gone too far with these rules and taking a little bit of excitement out of the game a little bit? I absolutely do. I mean, I'm
2: not a fan of the new rules at all. Um, Really, any of them. I don't. I I just. Pace of play, too, all that stuff. No, to me, it seems rushed. And I haven't watched as many games this year, but the games I have been able to watch, it just seems rushed. And I I just don't think. The the thing that really bothers me is the people that love it, or like the new rules, it's mainly because games 30 minutes less. they go do something else, right? And so I hear the get in the box and swing the bat. I hear people rag, thank God we don't have to watch Nomar adjust his batting gloves anymore. I'm like, yeah, we didn't care because we knew once he got his batting gloves tight, something good was six and a half. to happen. And why mm, that's right. are so concerned about a guy adjusting his batting gloves or his cup If you ever worn a cup, you know it's uncomfortable for the three hours you're wearing it. You're always adjusting it, and why that's that big a deal. I mean, the time that you step out of the batter's box when you're hitting and you're adjusting your batter's box, the whole time you're thinking about, you know, what's happened so far in this at bat, what's the game situation, what's the situation of this at bat, what's my job, you're thinking about that stuff. It may look like I'm just adjusting my batting gloves or my cup, but I'm also thinking and game planning. Mm-hmm. And now the guys don't have as, as much time to do that. And I just don't understand. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, we're, everybody knows it's the hardest game at this level. It's, you know, the highest level of the sport. You're playing against the best of the best. I can't have a little extra time to think about
1: what I need to do to get this job done. I mean, look at golf. I mean, you have all day long to hit your golf shot. I mean, you could sit there and plan a shot out for five. 10 minutes if you really wanted to. I don't think there's a clock on that, and um, there seems to be a draw towards golf. So maybe it's not the pace of play that's drawing people away from it. Maybe it's that lack of excitement, you know, kind of the MLB coming over the top and making too many rules or uh, whatever it is, but well, I, I, think, I, I agree I with you, Jeff, I on that. I think
2: it's uh, – sorry to interrupt you, but I think it's uh, – No, you The lack of action when we started, mm-hmm. you know, the three true outcomes with the, the walk, strikeout, and home run. It's like well, we're just waiting for homers, and if we're going to have – 2.5 homers a game in three hours is going to be, you know, every hour there's going to be one home run. There's going to be six strikeouts. There's going to be three walks. There's a lot of standing around and not excitement because you just don't see the the type of baseball that was played when I came up with the, the bunts and the yeah. hit and runs and the squeeze plays and things like that. You just don't see that much anymore because analytics has said that, you know, stealing bases until this year when they changed that, those rules was not worth the risk and that don't worry about, shortening up the two strikes to put the ball in play because you're going to be out anyway if you hit it on the ground. So you got to try and lift that ball in the air um, with two
0: strikes. So Jeff, Matt cited how these new rules, these time limits, these new in-game rules have kind of assisted in the um, decline of MLB viewership over the years because it's almost taking the excitement away from the game. And you agreed with that. But That brings me to kind of the reason we brought you on here, Jeff. Your most recent tweet, you're saying these new rules are taking fun out of the game. I'm just going to read your most recent tweet real quick, and then we'll get into it. You quote tweeted a video of Manny Ramirez's son hitting a walk-off home run to send his team to the state championship, and you said... Thanks MLB for encouraging kids to act foolishly on a baseball field. I'm sure this young man has a bright future, but I played against his dad who was a great hitter and I never saw him do this. Hashtag she gone. Hashtag, let the kids play. Do you not think that's contradictory? Uh, in what way? I don't understand. How it, well, you're Well, sa- you're saying hashtag, let the kids play. That hashtag was invented to basically because of bat flips. In in this video, he didn't even – Jeff, in this video, he didn't even flip his – he literally just gave it a little stare and started walking. And you also said you never saw Manny Ramirez do it. There's countless videos of Ramirez throwing his gloves off, throwing his hands up in the box before the ball's even out.
2: Yeah, I never said I didn't see Manny Ramirez celebrate. I said I never saw Manny Ramirez do this. I never saw Manny Ramirez dance 10 feet from home plate. (laughs) I didn't. I mean, that. I didn't say I never saw Manny Ramirez celebrate, and that's what everybody ran with—that I said that I never said that. If you read the tweet, you can see it doesn't say that I didn't say uh, anything about Manny Ramirez celebrating, and to let the kids play, uh, I've probably hashtagged a thousand times because to me it's a mockery—a mockery of every time I see the showboating stuff being promoted by Major League Baseball because they allowed the game to become boring with the analytics and the, the three true outcomes that now the only way we can have fun and make it exciting is to let the kids play and let them wear silly hats in the dugout and silly chains and run around pushing each other in shopping carts like like college kids would do. And I just think this at, at the highest level, I just don't think it looks good. And neither do any of my Ooh. teammates, any of my former teammates, I can
0: promise you. They can't even watch this. What's so what's but what's wrong with adding a li- injecting a little flair into a game that definitely was boring? Like we all we all can sit here and lie to each other. Baseball was boring to watch a, th- over the last five, six, seven years. We all know that. That's true. We're all huge baseball heads here. No one here wants to sit and watch a five hour baseball game. That's a fact, right? Unless it's a good game, right? You know,
2: and I think that's the problem is that it's all based on the time and not. Whether it's a good game. I mean, you're going to watch a movie for three hours, and if it's really, really good, you're not going to complain, right? But if it's long and boring and it lasts an hour too long, you're going to think it sucked. You know? So it, to me, the time has nothing to do with it. It's whether it's entertaining or not. With the Yankees and Red Sox games in the playoffs that have lasted three and a half to four hours, nobody was bitching about the game being too long, except maybe people on the East Coast had to get up early and go to work or take their kids to school. If it's entertaining, it's entertaining, and the, the amount of time is irrelevant.
0: So you don't think bat flips or anything like that is entertaining? No,
2: I don't. And it's just you know you got to understand I played 30 years ago, so we were all yeah
0: no taught, no that's exactly what I'm trying we to tell Always thought
2: that you didn't you didn't disrespect the other team, so we were mm-hmm. taught not to do that. If somebody came up, a rookie came up and did something like that, pimped a homer, not even to the extreme that they do today, a veteran player would go over and tell them, say, listen. We don't do that here. If you do that, you're going to get hit or you're going to get one of your teammates hit. And if he gets hit, he's going to blame you and there's going to be a problem.
0: Right. But the games evolved today into where, like, that's not that common anymore. And we're right? not allowed
2: to.
1: They're not allowed to do that. We're not allowed to retaliate. So let me ask you this. So, would, I mean, you, be okay, would you be okay with um, the pimping the home runs if the players are allowed to police their own games today? Would you be more okay with it? if a pitcher can come back and drill the kid and that's like, okay.
2: Yeah, I would. I would be more okay with it, to be honest. I don't think it would happen near as much. You know, I don't think pitchers would, uh, um, pitchers wouldn't be demonstrative and pound their chest and yell at the hitter either if they had to step
0: in the batter's box. Do you hate that too? You think that's bad for the game as well? Yeah. Because you're showing emotion?
2: No, the thing is, I don't mind showing emotion. Just, you know, be excited, whatever. But um, why is it – Seems like it's a lot of times directed at the other team. Like, yeah, you suck. I got you. I punched you out, pound my chest or whatever. And then the the hitter's pissed off. You can see it. It's, I mean, you see the fights in the minor. A lot of this happens in winter ball too. There's a lot of a lot of uh, you know showboating or I won't. I don't know if it's the look at me or whatever. But a lot of that stuff leads to animosity from the other team. And I always felt, and I still to this day believe that. You know, if I get a, home, you know, I didn't hit home runs, but if I get a big hit knocking knock in a winning run off that pitcher, he's he's not too happy. He's kind of down in the dumps. I beat him. That's hmm. enough for me. He knows I beat him. But why do I need to then pound my chest and rip my jersey off and do all this silly stuff to make it even worse? Because now the next time he faces me, he's going to be pissed off and he might retaliate.
1: What about just like a classic stare down after like a strikeout? Pitcher stares, stares him down. Yes, no. Yeah, those used to lead the fights too because Pedro used to stare at a lot of guys. I was just gonna I was just gonna say that. Yeah. Well, you
2: know, you, trust me, when you played with Pedro, you better be ready to go because he was going to throw at somebody almost every night. He was going to, you know, give him the bow tie to get him off the plate because that's part of his part of what he did as a pitcher. He was intimidating because guys were, you know, a little bit afraid that he might come up and in and that gave him the ability to pitch away when those guys weren't real comfortable in the box that's just kind of – Nolan Ryan was the same way. I played with Nolan. Roger Clemens the same way. You know, a, l- a lot of it was about intimidation. And, and you knew when you were facing one of those guys that, uh, you know, what they were capable of doing if they didn't like the way you're at. I mean, I was afraid to get a hit off Randy Johnson, you know, and I got a few hits off him. And I was like, man, he just looks like he's pissed off at me, you know, and he's mean and he's like a foot taller than me. And it's like, I'm just going to go to first and keep my head down.
0: Jeff, so you do remote coaching, right? Or wrong? No, no, I don't. You d- no. Oh, you don't? Okay. No. All right. So tell me about She Gone Nation then. Yeah,
2: well, I don't know if you've seen my videos, but uh, three, probably just over three years ago, I made a video in my backyard goofing around, and I was mocking a video that I'd seen on social media. And uh, at the end of the video, I said, She Gone, and jokingly, and a bunch of people said, you should hashtag She Gone. I, I said, okay, well, what does that mean? I had no idea. And, Next thing I know, they're saying, we need she hats and T-shirts. And so really the whole idea of the she movement was to help educate people as to a lot of the, the teaching out there in the hitting, hitting world and, and fielding world that I think is, is based on my experience as a player and what I was taught that I think is not helping these kids. In fact, I think it's hurting kids. And, you know, someone has a lot of followers on, on Instagram and calls themselves the hitting doctor. Well, they obviously know what they're talking about, right? Well, if you look at these guys – Most of them never played um, beyond college, if college. And so now you're going to hire somebody to teach your kid how to be a good hitter who was never a good hitter in his life. Okay, And it doesn't mean you can't be a great coach. That's one of the arguments I have with people. never said you can't be a great coach if you didn't play at a high level. But some of these people, when you look at what they're teaching, it goes way against what we were all taught you know, and what the guys before us and before us were taught over 147 years in the major leagues. And now all of a sudden, everybody's got to hit a new way. And this is the only way to do it. To me, it's a nonsense. So what I've done with She Gone is, is um, now I've been traveling all over the country. I've been in the past year, I've been to Colorado, Wyoming, Connecticut, New York, Georgia, Oklahoma, all over Texas next on Friday, I head to Springfield, Massachusetts. Um no kidding! Yeah, we're fr- yeah. we're both that,
0: that's from like right outside there. Yeah, where are you so, speaking?
2: There's a uh, there's an or- a friend of, a friend I met through Facebook uh, had me up to Cooperstown about uh, two months ago to speak to their company. I do keynote speaking, and so he asked yep. if I would be interested in coming up and speaking to their company. You know, they get their little company retreat every two or three years, and I said, yeah. So they fly me up there, and I speak uh, to about 40 or 50 members of the, their company, an accounting, an accounting firm in, in Boston, uh, inside the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame, um, which I'd never been to. Got the tour of the Hall of Fame. I took this guy, Dan Morrill, with me. We toured the Hall of Fame. We went in the archives, played golf. the next.
0: Dan week. Morrill? Dan Morrill. Dan. Mo- like Danny Morrill? Yes, sir. I know who that is, Jeff. I, I know him very well. He, he's big in the Cape League up here. Yeah, he does a lot with the uh, Cape League guys. Yeah, yeah. He's a friend of my stepfather's. Yeah. Well, I will be going to
2: uh, uh, Springfield um, on Friday, and I'll be staying with Dan for four days. We're going to play golf twice, and then a good buddy of his is uh, owns like a a collegiate summer team, I think, up there, Mm -hmm. Springfield and Holyoke.
0: Huh? Yeah, Valley Valley Blue
2: Sox. Holyoke. I don't know for sure. I don't know exactly. Okay. I I think that's got to be. He's friends during the NECBL. He's friends with the owner, and uh, he mentioned we really hit it off in uh, Cooperstown. And he said, "Hey, would well, you want to come up here and help the, the college kids? Are going to do a, a baseball camp for some inner city kids, and we'd love to have you come up and be part of that." So that's what I'm doing. Um, I think
1: on, on Saturday or Sunday. You know where you're nice. golfing because I, I can. I got a list of recommendations out there for you. I man. don't know. Yeah,
2: I'll have to. I'll have to find out. But I know we're. Uh, He's the big golfer. He's a member of a country club somewhere up there, and so we're supposed to play a couple times. uh, Hey, you want a hotel? I was like, no, man. I'd rather just stay at your house, and we can stay up late and have a cold beer and and talking, telling baseball stories. So,
0: absolutely, Jeff. So you mentioned like the million hitting gurus. You specifically called out the hitting doctor on Instagram. All these guys on social media. What do you think is the main problem that people are listening to that you've seen?
2: Oh, the kids need to hit, uh, lift the ball. You know, they need to uh, uh, hit the ball in the air because, you know, I, I don't know when it was when Josh Donaldson went on the MLB network and said, if you're hitting, if your mm-hmm. little league coach says to hit the ball on the ground, tell him no, hit the ball in the air. And, and it's like, not everybody can hit the ball over the fence, Josh. You're kind of a freak. Mm-hmm. You're 5'11 and not a very big guy, and you can hit the ball farther than most guys your size can. So the guys are my size. and um, you know I, When I played, I was 5'9", 160. You know, and, I didn't, and And the balls we used are a little bit different than the balls they are using today. There's no question. You can see mm-hmm. the home run distances are mad. Every night there's five guys hitting the ball over 450. You know, that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And I played with Nomar, and I played with Mo Vaughn and got Conseco. They even hit balls that far every night. And so now all of a sudden the balls
0: are flying. Um,
2: mm-hmm. So I have to get your question. I don't know what you ask me again.
0: No, it was just what do you think is the – I'll I'll go to a different question that goes off of that. What would you say right now are your top three hitting myths that you see all the time across social media that – like this is your platform now that people should not be listening to? Yeah. Uh,
2: trying to lift the ball, hit the underside of the ball, uh, create this uh, barrel depth or barrel dump is what I call it, which A-Rod – I posted a video of A-Rod talking about how we used to always swing down. So it was never – You know, we brought our hands from right here. You can't see it from right here to the ball. There was never – you didn't have enough time, you know, with a 95-mile-an-hour fastball to start your swing early and create this barrel depth behind you. That was Uh – you know, that was a long swing. Nobody did that. And because we were, you know, we were trying to make contact with two strikes, not swing for a home run no matter what the count is or what the game situation is. Um, Mm -hmm. The other one, you know, the swing down – which is what a lot of us retired guys talk about, how we swung down. It's not chopping. It's not chopping. We brought our hands from high directly to where the contact point is, in a straight line, and that was the, that was the idea. It wasn't anything about starting your bat early and getting on plane early so you can stay in the zone. My bat stayed in the zone as long as anyone, and I was always taught to swing down on the ball and not have this long swing behind me,
0: Jeff. So when you see today's game and you see like a player struggling, such as like a Joey Gallo, what what goes through your mind? I just
2: can't believe he hasn't made an adjustment in eight years and that he just continues. And I see this. <laughs> uh, I was talking to I was with Joey Hamilton in Georgia, my old teammate, um, last five days, and talking about this exact thing and about how guys who are you know, 270 career hitters can all of a sudden hit 170. I just don't understand how you can – you know, for me, a bad year was if I hit 270. If I was 20 points below my batting average, to me, that was a disappointment. But now guys are 100 or more points below. Bellinger a couple years ago hit like 160. And it's like, this guy's too good to be hitting this. And it's like they're just going to go with their same game plan. They're not going to make adjustments. And for Joey Gallo – He's always been a you know all or nothing kind of guy, um,
0: but he doesn't. This year, to, it's an extreme though. Yeah, he
2: doesn't have to, you know, hit the ball 500 feet every time. You know, he can hit the ball out mm-hmm. to any part of the ballpark. The only part I could hit the ball out of was from left center over to the foul pole. If I hit it anywhere mm-hmm. else in the air, it was usually getting caught. But some of these guys that are bigger and stronger. They don't have to try and pull the ball. They can hit the ball. Aaron Judge can hit the ball out to right field like a left handed power hitter. You know, he misses mm-hmm. his balls over the fence because he's 6'7, 280. And the the guys like Joey Gallo, who's an incredible athlete, I think he just never makes an adjustment and keeps doing that uppercut swing and the, the bats in the hitting zone for, you know, a split second. So if you had him in front of you right now, what are maybe a couple of things you'd tell him? First off, I'd say, Manny, we got to, we got to, Change the swing. Your your swing goes from here straight up every time. You've got to have a more level swing and keep the the bat in the hitting zone longer. You need to stop trying to hit the ball, you know, three hundred feet high and four hundred feet long. Just hit the ball on the line and your home runs are gonna happen. And they would. He would he could hit the ball. If you look at Stanton doesn't hit sky homers, he hits lenius. you know. I mean back in those days, McGuire and those guys, they would hit the mile-high homers or whatever, but the best hitters, No Mars homers weren't like towering shots. They were line drives. Line drives, line yeah. Line drives that stayed in the air longer. Mo hit some towering shots back then in Canseco, but a lot of the, the best hitters back then, man, their home runs were line drives that carried out of the park.
0: Jeff, so when you played, you're mentioning all the prolific home run hitters of your era. Would there be a spot on a team for a guy like a Joey Gallo? Or no, because one hundred and eighty and twenty-five home runs isn't going to cut it back then.
2: No, I mean it, I don't think there would be. I don't think there would be. It just if you couldn't hit, basically, yeah, you could play like three positions back then and hit two hundred and twenty or less. You had to be a Gold Glove shortstop, a Gold Glove outfielder who could, you know, steal bases, or a backup catcher. But the rest of the team, man, if you were hitting two hundred and fifty, you were looking around because there is somebody in AAA hitting three hundred who's ready to take your spot. And it was, you know, just didn't have many guys that were around that were hitting there. There was a few guys back in the day that you have, you know, uh, before me, Dave Kingman, those kind of guys that were all or nothing kind of guys, Ron Kittle, uh, Adam Dunn, you know, but those guys walked a hundred times and struck out a bunch and hit 30 homers. I guess Chris Carter was another one who did that. I think he led the league in home runs. One year. Oh, wow. Like, yeah. The next year, I think he was not in the big leagues believe that Mm -hmm.
0: yeah i think that was like 2012 or something right? yeah yeah
2: 40 homers and 200 strikeouts and hit 210 and we just didn't see guys like that it was you know because batting average was you know something that we felt was important and something that we was a good tool to evaluate if guy was a good hitter or not but now apparently it's
1: i was just gonna ask why do you think so many guys hit for average back then versus now because we uh
2: shortened up with two strikes and we were um striking out was like the the worst thing you could do it wasn't okay now it's okay because the analytics suggests by the people upstairs in the office who didn't play, they suggest that, you know, don't, like I said earlier, don't shorten up at two strikes. We don't want you to just put the ball in play. Keep using your A swing because if you run into one with two strikes, it's going to be a double or a homer and that's going to produce more runs. And, you know, that's why you see, I think, the batting average as slow
0: as they are. Jeff, so you played in the heart and I mean the heart of the steroid era As a guy, maybe you did steroids, maybe you didn't. I have no idea about your career. But as a guy, I'm going to assume that you didn't. As a guy who did not, what was it like for you to be in the big leagues for almost 10 years, surrounded by guys who were obviously cheating the game, cheating themselves, cheating their teammates?
2: Yeah, I didn't like it. And I never did steroids. I actually had a coach in A-Ball that, um, believe it or not, um, that asked me if I ever considered using steroids. And I said, no, why? He goes, I don't think he'll be big enough to ever play in the big leagues. And I was like, well, if I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing that. And then when I got to the big Mm -hmm. leagues, um, I think it was just starting in in the early nineties. And I was so naive, dude. I was like, I didn't even notice half the stuff that was going on. Nobody ever came to me and said, Hey, we're doing steroids. You want some, or, you know, any, I never saw anybody do it, but I did start noticing players who were significantly bigger than they were the year before. And I'm here busting my ass in the off season to put on ten pounds, which I would lose the first week of spring training. And now I'm here. I am at five nine, one hundred and sixty, playing against guys that are, you know, put on thirty pounds in the off season. And I, I felt like it was unfair. It was an unfair playing field. We even the guys who weren't using steroids brought it up to the union, and the union did nothing about it. And uh, because I think they knew that uh, if we have these bigger, stronger players hitting home runs, it's going to Create more revenue for the game. It's going to create more excitement for the game and grow the game. And they just kind of turned a blind eye to it. And, you know, I look back at a lot of the guys I played against that were on steroids. And, you know, there's steroid guys in the Hall of Fame. We know that. Some guys are getting blackballed and some guys are in. And, you know, I always said that, you know, the guys who did steroids cheated the competition. Okay. They did it because um, they were willing to, to risk, um, their health in an attempt to make more money and become a star. And by doing those two things, that's what they got out of it. They don't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame because the guys that they played against, they cheated. And they did things that uh, knowing it was against the rules, and they still did them anyway, and they got away with it. And so to me, they don't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame.
1: So so you think anybody that did steroids ever should not be allowed in the Hall of Fame? I mean –
2: and, and that that's a tough one too. I, I Give him a separate wing. Maybe don't induct him into the Hall of Fame, like the rest of the guys. But say he these are the guys who were the the best players during the steroid era, and this is their wing. But they're not actually inducted in the Hall of Fame. But they're you know it's a museum. It's a museum, you know about baseball. And um, this is the, this is the steroid hall. Right yeah, now. I don't this know exactly. I mean, nobody <laughs> knows the, you know the exact best way to do it because. You know, and, and you look at the guys who are not in the Hall of Fame that were great, like Barry Bonds and McGuire and Sammy Sosa. I mean, where would the game be today if it wasn't for those guys and what they did mm-hmm. and the strike, you know? But mm-hmm. um, the sad part is that we know that, that they did cheat, and, and that's hard. It's hard when you're, you know, just if you have a regular job and you're busting your ass every day to, to do your job well – and you know, you're doing everything your boss tells you to do, and you know, there's somebody over here in the corner who's, you know, going behind uh, and, and sneaking information or not doing the work you're putting in, you're not going to be happy about it,
0: you know. Do you ever feel that, like, players that took steroids ha- got more opportunities than you did on the same team?
2: No, not necessarily. Um, because basically, it was if you performed, you got a chance, and if you didn't, you didn't get a chance. And, you know, I did see some guys that come up that, Got opportunities because they probably did steroids who got opportunities over some of my friends who I think deserved opportunities and never got them who were clean. So that's kind of tough, you know, for those guys.
0: Throughout the major league clubhouse, Jeff, during your time, like, was it super apparent that there were steroids within the clubhouses or no? Was it kind of like people are doing them in the bathroom? They're not doing them like wide. Like no one's sticking each other with a needle in the middle of the clubhouse.
2: Like I said, I never saw it. I never saw. Yeah. I've actually, you know, I've talked to players that uh, were on other teams that came and played with us that said they saw players injecting each other on flights and things.
0: Yeah. yeah. There's, there's a million stories, Every, Jose Canseco specifically doing big, that with yeah. Mark McGuire. The
2: funny thing about yeah. Canseco, cause you know, I, I'm a big Canseco fan. He was a great teammate of mine with Texas and Boston. When he came out with that book, mm-hmm. man, he, you know, after he kind of got blackballed he came out with that book, but, Pretty much everything he said in that book is true, right?
0: Everything has been. Yeah, well, that's why people got so mad.
2: Yeah. and But here's the thing. It's like, you know, everybody else was getting revered. Uh, Bonds and McGuire and Sosa and those guys were stars. Everybody talked about them. And where's Canseco's back here? And he was a hell of a player, man. And, and all of a sudden, nobody wanted to touch him with a
0: 10-foot pole. And The character clause comes into play there, Jeff, though. Come on.
2: Yeah. No,
0: he honestly was yeah.
2: honestly a great teammate. And everybody that was his teammate would say the same thing. He was so funny. N-
0: yeah, I'm not disputing that.
2: Yeah. And, you know. Off the field. But he was a rock different. star. I mean, look, the dude, imagine everywhere you go, every woman is throwing themselves at you. Okay? I didn't have that issue, you know? <laughs> right? <Not laughs> you everybody. didn't have that problem? I mean, he was, he was like playing with Elvis Presley. Everywhere you went didn't matter if it was to go get breakfast you know before the game or lunch or whatever the casino everybody knew him and so he was like a rock star out there and you know i can't really fault him for probably giving in to some of the stuff that was right just thrown in
0: his face oh listen same i'm i don't know how i would have acted if i were jose canseco in the 90s that's for sure but um jeff okay so one of my last questions for you is what do you think so what would what do you think you would hit in today's game? I'd hit. You're a 290 hitter over eight years in the big leagues. That's impressive, man. What like? Yeah, I'm just curious. I'd be able to hit today what I hit when I played sure. 290 today over a full season.
2: Yeah, I never got to play a full season. Even if even when I was healthy, I didn't get to play because you know there's a lot of politics in the game. And when I was with the Red Sox, and they signed Offerman, Jimmy Williams wanted to play me, but he had to play Offerman because Duquette made him. So Mm I get ridiculed because I only had 400 at-bats two years. And it's like, I don't make the lineup. You know, If I'm in the lineup, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do my thing. But I don't see any reason why I wouldn't be able to. Everybody says that everybody throws too hard now. But I hit the best, the hardest throwers better than anybody on our team. I hit, that was the scouting report on me. That I hit the best pitchers better than anybody on our team, and so I hit well against Clemens and Randy Johnson and Mariano Rivera and those guys who were the hardest throwers in the game when I played. So I'm pretty sure I'd be able to hit the guys today. I could blossom. Was ever
0: an issue? Was there any great pitcher, Jeff, that you would face that like you had their number?
2: Uh, well, Clemens, I
0: hit over 400 against Clemens. Damn!
2: Yeah, and so there, how many uh, how many plate appearances? Like 20 or something like that. Damn. And now I hit had wow. 300 against Rivera and 300 against Randy Johnson. Um, but, you know.
0: What was your approach against a guy like Clemens?
2: I'm looking fastball, man. I was looking fastball yeah, against just... pretty much everybody. but And that was the thing. When you're a guy my size, they're not thinking that they can't throw it down the middle because I'm not going to hit a homer. So I'm just looking for a fastball and trying to be short and quick to the ball and get a base hit and get on base for Nomar or Mo Vaughn or Reggie Jefferson, those guys. That was my mm-hmm. role.
0: Got it, Matt. You got anything else? I
1: think I'm good. We appreciate you coming on, Jeff. Seriously, thank you for taking the time, and yeah, we yeah, appreciate Jeff, it. Best
0: of luck uh, this weekend in Springfield. Thank you so much. Tell Danny Morrill I said hello. He he will remember me. I promise. You know, um, I, I that's so funny.
2: You guys, you guys know uh, each other. Appreciate you guys having me on. I know yesterday was kind of a you know a weird day,
1: crazy day for you. Uh, yeah, that's you got like, a lot of buzz, man. The
2: second time that the you know, that they've come after me. Another time I posted a video of a, a college kid hitting a Homer and throwing his bat. And next thing I know, it's got 10 million views and um, Jeff Fry, the racist snowflake and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and of and course, so, yeah. um, you know, it's pretty ugly out there in social media, but I can tell you this, that, you know, the people that know me, the people that I go out to these um, different places and work with their organizations, you know, what they think of me is, is important. And, what people I don't know on social media say about me behind my back when they're have a fake profile picture—that's really not.
1: I really don't care. I really don't care. I know what I'm out there trying to do. Yeah. Well, we'll from us, uh, stay opinionated. It's good. Maybe we'll have you. Maybe you'll have another take one of these days, and we'll have you right back on. So yeah, we'll man. surely be reaching you out be in the opinions, future. Jeff. We we applaud that. That's it. awesome. I man.
2: appreciate you, fellas. Appreciate it. I appreciate it, man. Have a, a good go one. one. Okay. Thank we'll talk you. soon. All right.